0: All of those books are available on Amazon, as well as everywhere else books are sold. That's Travel Light, Knowing Where to Look, and Bliss More. All right, back to the show.
1: What happened was I went broke and uh, I lost my house. My wife's car got repossessed and I lost the power in our house, which is all bad. But if you've ever experienced this one, we had the water turned off. Even talking about it now is hard for me. I mean, and I talked about it a lot. I haven't done it in a while. But we would have to get up in our apartment complex and climb down the stairs in the morning and go to the pool. And there's an outdoor shower there. I'd hold a towel up where my new bride would take her shower so no one could see her outside, brush her teeth. Then we would switch and she'd hold the towel up and I'd shower and brush my teeth. And then we would walk back. We would walk back. I was so ashamed completely emasculated. I felt like a fraud. Here I am selling the dream every day in my business life and living a nightmare. And it was one of the most difficult times in my entire life. I was very humbling, very humiliating.
0: Hey there, it's Light Watkins. Welcome back to the Light Watkins Show. If This is your first time here. I interview ordinary people who have taken extraordinary leaps of faith in the direction of their path and their purpose, and in doing so, they've been able to positively impact many others to do the same. My guest today is someone who I've been following for years. He's one of the most motivational and inspirational people that I've come across. His name growing up was Eddie the Spaghetti due to his small and skinny stature. But today, we know him as the uber-successful entrepreneur and inspirational speaker, Mr. Ed Milet. And during our conversation, Ed talks about how he was raised in a chaotic home environment with an alcoholic father and how he got so good at reading his dad's body language that he could tell just by the way his father unlocked the front door when he came home each night whether or not there was going to be chaos in the house. And after getting an ultimatum from his mom, Ed's father eventually got cleaned up. And meanwhile, Ed got married very young. And then he went through several hardships of his own with his new wife. They lost their house. They had their electricity shut off. They had their car repossessed the whole night. Ed eventually found himself working at a home for boys, and he was able to see how the turmoil that he faced in his life growing up actually prepared him to be someone that the boys could relate to and vice versa. And he was finally feeling like he had a purpose in life. And it changed everything, including his relationship with his father, who went on to become Ed's best friend and hero. They would talk and play golf every week, literally up until the time his dad passed away. Ed wrote a book called The Power of One More, which was inspired by his relationship with his father. It just came out and it details many of the powerful lessons that Ed received throughout his life. Some of those lessons came from things going right. A lot of those lessons came from things going left. I really loved his book, and as I mentioned to Ed during our interview, I got choked up at the end when he talked about how his relationship with his father affected him, and especially when he described his dad's final days of showing up for his friends and other people in the recovery community literally up until his last breath. So I think you're going to get a lot of value from listening to our episode, and Ed is a true luminary who I'm now happy to call a friend. So without further ado, let's get to my conversation with the incomparable Mr. Ed Millet. Ed Millet, it is an honor and a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thanks so much for making the time.
1: I have already told you the honor and pleasure is mine.
0: Big fan and grateful to be here. Good, man. So I want to talk a little bit about... Well, we're going to talk a lot about the book, but I want to talk a little bit about your backstory. For those people who've been living under a rock over the last 20 years and haven't heard about you, talk a little bit about your childhood. I know you're born in Boston, but then you, I guess, reared in Diamond Bar, California. So talk a little bit about the type of family you come from and the dynamic in the household. There is a story about an alcoholic father and all that. So obviously
1: that added to the dynamic? What was that like for you growing up? Yeah. Great question. That's really where the book comes from too. The power of one more comes from my dad, all the entire books written about my dad and lessons I learned there that i have applied to my own business life. But my upbringing was, it's a really interesting question because I'm conflicted when I say it. I come from a very loving family, lower middle class, Mm -hmm. but poor, like I got a present on Christmas, but not rich. Like we would even take a vacation. So financially, Mm -hmm. I'd say lower middle class most of the time, probably by the time I left there, they were middle class, meaning I went away to school. I have a loving family, but a dysfunctional family like Mm -hmm. most people. And dysfunction can be all kinds of different things. Dysfunction can be drug or alcohol use, divorce, financial problems, abuse. They didn't tell you they loved you enough, didn't hug you enough. One insidious form of dysfunction I found is parents who don't chase their dreams. That's a form of child neglect is a parent Mm -hmm. not living their full destiny not pursuing their dream, not pursuing their destiny, because you install that software in your kid that not chasing something, not, not going for it, not living your best is acceptable. But in my case, it was alcohol and drug use with my dad. And so I would say there was chaos in my childhood for the first 15 years. Then my dad got sober. But those first 15 years I grew up, I, didn't, I was never really a little boy, to be really honest with you. I had three little sisters and a mom. And by the time I was five, brother, when my dad would come through the front door, I use this ability to this day. I don't have that many skills in business, but the couple I do have, ironically, came because of my dad's drinking. And one of them is I can read people very well and be present with them because when he would come through that front door, I had to figure out which dad it was. And you could tell by the way he put the key in the lock, which was fascinating. Yeah. At first, it was how he was dressed and how he moved and how he talked. And if it was drunk, dad, I had to get my sisters upstairs, tell my mom to go take a shower. And you know, hide them. If it was sober dad, we'd go play basketball in the backyard and everything was cool. Then it actually evolved, you're exactly right, to the point where I could hear the key in the lock. And if it struggled to get in there, I knew Mimi, Andrea, Erica, get upstairs. And if it went smoothly in the lock, he probably hadn't been drinking. And then I had to learn to communicate. How do you talk him out of this state? It's ironic, like all this business time later, you go, What are you pretty good at? I don't really know. I'm good at impressing with people and I'm good at talking. But I grew up chaos. And that's an important thing because we have an emotional home, right? I write about this in the book. We all have these three or four emotions we get on a regular basis, even if they don't serve us. You know, you can get peace, joy, ecstasy, tranquility, or you can get worry, anger, depression, frustration, chaos. It depends. You get your series of emotions. You'll find a way to get them. And for me, no matter how much money I made in my life, even how much happiness I had, I kept creating chaos because I was comfortable in it. And I'm even good in it. I thrive in it because I'm used to it. But finally, maybe not that long ago either, brother, maybe like four or five years ago, I went, do I want to keep having chaos all the time, like stress? And I kept getting it because I was familiar with it. And so I grew up very familiar with that. And even as an adult, I realized some things never changed. And then finally, I made some decisions that changed. And I write about how to do that in the book.
0: So what inspired you to seek out baseball? And also, did your dad have any dreams that he had given up on?
1: Yeah. My dad was an okay athlete. I don't think my dad had a bunch of dreams he had given up on. In all truth, man, I didn't come from a family that talked about dreams. Mm. We would, in my family, the type of human being you were is what mattered. End of story and family was it mattered. Nothing else. I mean, you know this. I've owned all these jets and whatnot in my life. My dad and mom have never even been on one of my planes. They don't care. It's not a priority in my family. And that's really a beautiful thing because those things really don't matter at the end of the day. It's who you are spiritually, who you are as a person. But baseball came along. Thank God, because it was. I had no self-esteem as a little boy. You have an alcoholic dad. I was small. I'm shy already. I didn't think very highly of myself. Eddie Spaghetti. Eddie Spaghetti. I got teased at school. (laughs) Eddie Spaghetti. Your meatballs are ready. They would tease me, and I couldn't win a fight. And you know, got in a fight with this dude Ray Ray when I was little. Your research is bananas, by the way. Just the fact that you know that. But baseball gave me confidence. It was something I was good at. It was something I could flourish at. I felt home. It was the only place I ever got recognition. In fact, it's how I got love from my dad. You know, a lot of people in life, this is when we grow up, we begin to conflate significance or recognition or acknowledgement or attention with love. Because as a child, oftentimes, the only time we felt love is when we achieved, when we got an A, when we hit a home run, when we performed somehow, then we felt love. And so we think that's love. But love isn't contingent. Love shouldn't be conditional on your achievements. And so it's really where I felt love, frankly, even though it probably wasn't real. And it wasn't until I got older that I realized I don't have to hit home runs or make millions of dollars to feel loved and to feel happiness. But it took me a long time to figure that out. But that's what baseball did give me was a place I had confidence, a place like I felt at home, like I'm pretty good at this. Finally, something I'm good at.
0: A large part of your messaging today is around following through on promises you make to yourself and even going a step further, going the extra mile and making that a habit, right? Yeah. And I'm curious because of what you wrote about your dad and and his sort of detached ways when you were a kid and he had tried to go sober several times. So by the time your mother gave him that ultimatum when you were 15, which I guess was the beginning of his pivot in his life, talk about how that influenced
1: your work ethic and your ability to follow through? Well, the big thing that it's done for me is that I believe human beings can change. Mm -hmm. I watched my dad live one way for the first 15 years of my life. And then I watched him live a completely different way the last 35 years of my life. So I know humans can change. My hero did it right in front of me. And so I believe in the human ability to change themselves. And no matter what your background is, bankruptcy, failure, you've done things you're ashamed of, you can set those bags down and change yourself. And my dad did it. I have a chapter in the book called One More Try, as you know. And my dad tried to get sober many times, but finally one more try happened. This theme of one more kept coming up because that one decision for my dad to get sober changed our family tree forever. And I believe the premise of the book and my belief system in my life, what changed in these instances was I think you're a lot closer to your dreams than you think. And I think the fact that you think they're far away keeps you that far away from them because you pace yourself. But I think your one decision, one relationship, one meeting, one thought, one podcast one breakthrough away from a completely different life. And I know this because it's happened in my own life. I've watched it in the lives of people I coach. I've watched it with my dad. And my dad also, another really unique thing was when my dad got sober, I said, Daddy, are you going to never drink again the rest of your life? And profoundly, my father said to me, I don't know. I know I'm not going to drink for one more day. And I've used that, man. There have been so many times I wanted to quit a relationship or a business I was in. And I'm like, you know what? I'm just not going to quit for one more day. Let's see how I feel tomorrow. And over time, you'll find out there's this great quote in Think and Grow Rich where he says, can you survive the temporary? Because on the other side of temporary pain is another self. If you can get through the temporary, you get introduced to this other self of you, this other version of you. Here I am now 50 years old. I've been introduced to many different other selves of me getting through temporary pain. So many people think everything's permanent. They make permanent decisions in a temporary situation, temporary pain. So what i really learned from my dad was everything is temporary. Even our bodies, my dad passed away. That's why I wrote the book. Even our bodies are temporary and that's not a sad thing. It's a beautiful thing to know that the only thing that's eternal is our soul. The only thing that's permanent is our souls. And so all these problems and issues we have in our lives, they're temporary. And on the other side of them is another self for you. And I watched my dad become this other self. I've watched me become another self you've experienced in your life. We're just talking about your background. Like, There's another self that you've been introduced to as you've gone through these different times in your life. And if we can have that perspective, we can make better decisions.
0: Hey there, really quickly, have you wanted to find your purpose or be more grateful or start a daily meditation practice, but you're not quite sure where to begin? Well, if inner work is like a drop of water, the happinessinsiders.com is like your ocean. That's my online community where you can learn real-world techniques for cultivating more fulfillment from the inside out. So whether it's learning how to manifest abundance or access your potential or overcome fear or even just start walking every day, I've got a blueprint for you which means you no longer have to use any more shoddy guesswork and you don't have to use the lone wolf approach to improving yourself. For a small accountability fee, You'll get community, you'll get accountability directly from me, and you'll get comprehensive instructions for getting your meditation practice off the ground. And for my podcast listeners, you'll receive 30% off of the all-access pass if you go to TheHappinessInsiders.com right now and use the promo code HAPPY. Again, TheHappinessInsiders.com. Enter the promo code HAPPY and you'll get 30% off on a yearly all-access pass which gives you access to dozens of inner work challenges and masterclasses, such as my 108-day meditation challenge, which has an 80% completion rate. Plus, you get to join me live for weekly meditations on Zoom and much, much more. That's TheHappinessInsiders.com. The code is HAPPY. All right, back to the episode. One thing I'd like you to talk about is, I know you put it in your book, but just for the listeners, yeah. what made this time different for your dad when you were 15? Why did he stick to it that time? And it also relates to when you had that conversation with your doctor, when he ran that heart exam on you, and he really gave you an interesting talk that I've never heard any doctor give anybody
1: before. Hey, I've done 3,000 interviews in my life. I've never met someone that has done better <laughs> research than you. I mean, these are not very well-known stories. So, a couple of them are in the book, but that last one's not. My mother said to my dad, "Hey, listen, this is it. You're going to lose your family." And so I asked my dad, "What's going to be different this time, Daddy?" And he goes, "Well, your mothers told me that I'm going to lose my family." It became that he had to choose the lesser of the two pains. And sometimes in life, there's two mechanisms that get us to make decisions. One is to avoid pain, and the other is to gain pleasure. Oftentimes, pain avoidance is a powerful mechanism. Pain is okay. And so my dad, the idea of losing his children, he said to me, he "Goes." You and your sisters deserve a dad you can be proud of. And your mother deserves a husband she can respect and admire, and that's worthy of her. And so I'm going to give this one more try. And so that's what changed my dad. And in my case, see, I think every great decision is made out of love. I just believe love's the most powerful driver and emotion in the world. And for me, the doctor part you're talking about, an uncle that died, my dad's brother, who I look a lot like, died at 50 of a heart attack. And so I ended up going to see a heart doctor just to get it checked, thinking I was healthy. I was already, you know, physically, I thought in good shape. And anyway, the doctor comes back, you do a scan and then you go take a break. And then you do. I literally went and ate a burrito during the break <laughs> and I come back into the. this guy got influence, though. He got leverage. He understood the pain part of making change. So what do most doctors do? They're just walking. OK, here we found this, this and this take this medication. Goodbye. And you may or may not do it. This guy wanted to ingrain in me deeply. This is it. This is it for you, man. And so he walks into the lobby, there's two of us and I'll be like, looks around, he's playing me, but I didn't know it at the time. He goes, I'm looking for Edward Milet. And I'm like, it's Edward Milet. That's me, Ed Milet, which he knew, but I didn't know at the time. And he goes, and he looks down at the chart and this is in the lobby. And he goes, Mm. wow, I can't believe these arteries are in that young of a body. Mm. And I went, what? He got your full attention. And he goes, he goes, follow me in here, son. Now I'm focused. Fear, fear is healthy. We sit down and he goes. I just want to be very clear with you. He goes. Let me ask you a question. You happily married? I said, Yeah, I married my high school sweetheart. He goes. I heard she's kind of cute. I go. She's hot. And he goes. "Uh, You got a kid? I said. I got a son. I got a daughter on the way. And he says. You want to go to your daughter's wedding? I said. What did you say? He goes. Do you want to be there at your daughter's wedding? And I said. The f is in that scan, dude. And he goes. I want you to listen to me very carefully, young man. If you keep going down the road you're going, some other man's walking your daughter down the aisle on her wedding day. Mm-mm. dude, my heart, even right now, right. He said some other things, but I fast forwarded the important thing to me. And I said, I'll do what you tell me. He goes, and he goes, if you do what I tell you to do, you'll be the man walking her down the aisle." There's a lot of things you can say to a dad, you go to his daughter on a wedding day, I'll do anything. And so this is the truth. A lot of mornings and you know this because I've said it, but a lot of mornings, two mornings ago is a good example of this. I got up tired, not feeling very well. I could have flaked on my workout. And you know what happens to me? Bella's wedding, Bella's wedding. Bella's wedding. Here I am, 50 years old, almost 51. I'm in pretty good shape. And I can tell you the reason is that conversation with that doctor that day. I don't miss workouts. When I'm putting something in my mouth that's probably not very healthy and I do it from time to time, I calibrate. Does it get me further away from Bella's wedding? Because there's not going to be another man walk my daughter down the aisle on that wedding day. I'm going to be the guy there. And I've been working on that for 18 years since she's just turned 18. And uh, hopefully the wedding's still really, really far away. (laughs) But that's been the driving mechanism in my life is to be there for my daughter's wedding. Beautiful. And now I want the listeners just to
0: get a sense of your wife, who you met when you were five years old, uh, yes. Christiana, that's her name. Yes. What happened a couple months after you got married? How did that whole thing, because you were doing well, you making $150,000 a year, you had a couple of houses.
1: Yeah. I went broke. I went broke. <laughs> and so let me tell you why I went broke. I write about this in the book quite a bit. My identity wasn't of a wealthy man. Hmm. Your identity is the thermostat setting of your life. It's really your worth. It's the thoughts, concepts, and beliefs you hold to be most true about yourself. What started to happen is my results started to exceed what I believed I was worth. And I turned the air conditioner on and cooled myself right back down to who I thought I was. And we do this in every area of our life. We do it in love. We have a 75 degree love identity and we start meeting our dream person. You ever see that? And then a year later, you broke up and you're back alone. Or you, you have a 75 degree fitness identity. You lose the 20 pounds. A year later, it seems coincidental. It's a fluke. And you've gained the weight back. You will always get your thermostat setting. So the key thing in life is to turn that identity thermostat higher and higher. And I talk extensively, as you know, in the book about how to do that. Pretty heavy, actually. And what happened was I went broke and uh, I lost my house. My wife's car got repossessed and I lost the power in our house, which is all bad. But if you've ever experienced this one, we had the water turned off. Even talking about it now is hard for me. I mean, and I talked about it a lot. I haven't done it in a while. But we would have to get up in our apartment complex and climb down the stairs in the morning and go to the pool. And there's an outdoor shower there. I'd hold a towel up where my new bride would take her shower so no one could see her outside, brush her teeth. Then we would switch and she'd hold the towel up and I'd shower and brush my teeth. And then we would walk back. We would walk back. I was so ashamed, completely emasculated. I felt like a fraud. Here I am selling the dream every day in my business life and living a nightmare. And it was one of the most difficult times in my entire life. I was very humbling, very humiliating, but it makes me grateful for what I have now. And I tell people off, it doesn't happen every morning, but I would say nowadays it happens maybe twice a week where I live at the ocean. So I'm, when I wake up in the morning, I'm looking at the Pacific Ocean, the waves crashing. When I leave here, I go to my island in Maine. I live on my own island. I look at the Atlantic Ocean. It's pretty cool. And I'm very grateful for that, but not as grateful as some mornings when I turn the water faucet on in the shower and the water hits my face. And And I literally have this flood of gratitude because of those moments back in the apartment. And I literally just say, thank you, God. Thank you so much. I'm more grateful for the water coming out of the shower than I am the ocean I look at when I wake up. And the reason for that is those moments. And so thank God that I'm still grateful. And sometimes our greatest pain will give us our greatest gratitude later. And I can tell you that that is very true for me.
0: Speaking of gratitude and your wife, she called you out when you had felt all emasculated. And then you had another buddy of
1: yours that called you out at a restaurant. Can you talk a little bit about how in the world do you do this? (laughs) It blows my mind. Yeah. My wife, who knew me, you know, she knew the confident college guy, me. She knew, you know, my background. And the truth is I was down and I was getting up later and I was laying around the house and I was not being the guy I was capable of becoming. And she finally sat me down. She was working, by the way. She was supporting us. She had the job. People see me now. They're like, ah, Mr. Superman. Not so much. Not at all. She basically called me out and said, hey, listen, this is it. You need to cut it out. This is not who you are. You were born to do something great with your life. You're not being the man that I grew up with. You're not the man that I know. You need to get your crap together because I'm getting up early and going to work every day. And every time I come home, you're sitting on the couch eating Cheetos and not getting our life together. And so she called me out and about the same time, another buddy of mine I work with is like, we had just done a sales meeting and he's like, who the heck was that guy? And I go, what do you mean? It was me. And he goes, bro, you seem so desperate, so unconfident. Mm. Bro, you're the one who always says certainty is influence, right? The most certain person influences You seem the least certain. It was pathetic. You got to wake up, man. You're better than this. I was so in this pattern of self-loathing and down on myself, and repeating this story. I was telling myself this story of, I had it going, I had it, and I blew it, and I had it. And I was manifesting this story over and over again, because we really are the story we tell ourselves. And then finally, this buddy of mine, who doesn't even know nothing about nothing, goes, I go, bro, I'm just so down on myself. Then this just sucks, this situation I'm in. I'm broke. I owe everybody money. And he goes to me, and he didn't even know what he was talking about. He goes, what would you need to believe about this so that it would actually serve you? Hmm we're driving. I go, I don't know. He goes, well, no, no. What would you need to believe about this so that it could actually serve you? I'm like thinking about it. I'm actually kind of pissed at him for calling me out. But I grew up with him. So he's the best man at my wedding. (laughs) I go, well, be a hell of a comeback story. (laughs) One inspiring thing to tell people someday. I swear to you. I said, I said, man, would that be a heck of a story? I had no water. Now I'm a multimillionaire. Man, my wife's calling me out. My best friend's calling me out. Now I'm successful. And here we are now, many, many years later, and exactly what I said is happening. So I had to flip. It's not the conditions of our life. It's not even the events of our life. It's the meaning we take away from the event, which creates the emotion, which then generates the behavior. So it's never the event. You and I, for example, you and I could roll up on a car accident, terrible situation, and a family's going to die. And we run up and the family's passing away. You and I would say, this is tragic. Mother Teresa would roll up to that same car accident, same exact event. Take a totally different meaning from it. She would tell you when she was alive, this is the honor of my lifetime to be Mm -hmm. present with a human being as their soul goes to heaven. Mm -hmm. Totally different meaning, completely different emotion, completely different behavior, same event. So it is true that it is not the events of our lives that define us. That's why in some cases you can take two children raised by an alcoholic father and one goes down a spiral of repeating the entire debacle and the other one becomes a mega achiever or happier person. Same event different meaning, different emotion, different behavior.
0: And do you remember what your idea of success was back in those days when you were having those conversations with your wife and your friend?
1: Yeah, I think it was more shallow. I think, candidly, when I was younger, because we didn't have things, but I lived near people who did. So I lived Mm -hmm. in a neighborhood, like in the down Mm -hmm. in the hill, like in the bottom of a hill, and all the rich people lived up on this hill right? And then me and my wife would come down ironically to the very beach that I live on right now. And we would walk on the beach. I'd see these people own these beach houses and I'd go, babe, someday I'm going to get us one of those oceanfront houses. And I had Mm -hmm. no idea. And I used to go, go, who do you think these people are? They must be like Martians or something, you know, like who lives on the ocean, right? So my original dreams were financial and that's okay. You know, that's okay. And I found out that, you know what I found out by the way about rich families or happy families, That at some point in their lineage, way, 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 way back, they weren't. They weren't happy or they weren't successful financially. And then the power of one shows up. In the book, the second chapter is called The Matrix. I teach you about your reticular activating system. As you know, I go very deep on programming your RAS, the prefrontal cortex of your brain to find the things you want. But I use Neo in The Matrix as an example, because what is Neo in The Matrix called? The one. And in Mm. every family, eventually, the one shows up the one who changes their total trajectory. It could be their emotional trajectory, their viewpoint on the world, their wealth, their abundance, their spirituality. But in every family, eventually the one shows up. In my family, I'm the one. I'm the one. I didn't get it just because I wanted it. I fought for it. I battled for it. I wanted it badly. What I didn't know was that what I was really changing wasn't our financial status because that's great. But I have changed the way my family thinks. I've changed our viewpoint on life. I've changed how much we want to help other people. We actually do dream as a family. As you know, in the book, and then I'll come up for air, I say there's two types of people in life. Those that operate out of their history and their memory. They just keep repeating their history and their memory and they operate out of it all the time. Then there's happy and successful people. They operate out of their imagination and their vision. When we're children, the reason we're happier, I honestly believe, is our imaginations are flourishing. And as we get older and we get into the world and we sort of get put in our box and our imagination gets suppressed, our dreams get suppressed and dreams and imagination are a little bit different and our vision gets suppressed and we just start to operate out of history, out of memory. And every day is like the other one. And by the way, even when the external conditions change, the internal emotions are still the same history, the same memory. And so we change the external, but inside we still feel the same sadness The same anxiety, the same worry, the same frustration, the same depression. So, but if you can begin to imagine a different emotion, dream about the different emotions, and instead of just getting intentional about your goals, what if you started to get intentional about the emotions you want to experience in your life? Because all the goals you have, you only want them because you think they'll make you feel something. Why not shortcut it and get consistent and congruent about what you want to feel? What you'll find is Mm. if you can feel those things, you'll actually get the goals faster. What's interesting about your story in particular
0: is I think we live in the society today where people want to know what the habit, what your morning habit, you know, Ed jumps into cold water. I I need to jump into cold water and then I'll be successful or Ed does this or that and I'll be successful if I do what he did. What they oftentimes miss is that actually, if you really look deeply at the story, Ed found his mindset in the unlikeliest of places in this McKinley home for disadvantaged boys. And that's where everything came together because you realized that your dad, your alcoholic father had been inadvertently preparing you to not only have the impact that you had with those boys, but also to see life differently, to shift away from that shallow understanding of
1: success to something completely different. So just talk a little bit about that transformation. This may be my favorite interview ever. (laughs) Um, I'm not kidding. So, again, everything happens for us and not to us. I think every thought leader says this now, but I can prove it to you. So, my dad's first AA meeting, again, my dad's drinking. My dad's first AA meeting, he comes back goes, I got you a job. And I'm at home, flunked out of baseball, graduated from college. I'm living in the same bedroom I grew up in, same teddy bear on the bed, same poster on the wall, eating out of his fridge. I said, okay, well, what's the job? He goes, dude, you don't get to decide. You're eating out of my fridge. Get your butt down there tomorrow and take this job. I go, you really don't know what it is? He goes, I have no idea what it is. And I show up there and it's an orphanage, hundreds of boys. I was in Cottage 8. My boys were eight to 10 years old. I am completely unqualified. I'm not a psychologist. I don't have children of my own. I'm flunked out of college. I don't even feel good about myself. And I walk into Cottage 8 at 6.30 in the morning. And immediately when I walk in, all these boys turn and look at me, all these precious little boys. My boys, their parents were dead, incarcerated, or hurt, actually molested them. Mm-hmm. And these little boys looked at me with these eyes. And I recognize those eyes because I have them. Any child that grew up with any dysfunction, we have different eyes and our eyes are, they say something very specific. And I want you to all hear me on this. Those eyes were telling me, and I didn't know I had it because I wasn't prepared. Love me, care about me. Here's a big one. Believe in me, please. Hmm. And show me how to live better. Love, care, believe, and show me how to live better. And it altered my life because i take them to school. I was there on Halloween when we trick-or-treated. I was there when they'd open their one present on Christmas. I was there when the girl didn't go out with them at a dance. And it changed my life because I fell in love with helping other people. All of a sudden, it wasn't about this ego old baseball player about, oh, I'm this. It was, oh my gosh, this isn't shallow. I was born to help people. This is my calling. Now, I don't know if it's always going to be with children, but it's my calling. And it's while I worked there that I started my business career. And I entered business very differently than almost anybody that I knew because this was so deeply in my heart now from being with my boys all day long. I'd be with them from six in the morning to sometimes two days in a row. And then I'd leave and go work in my business and come back. And what I found about every adult I've ever met, people say, how do you coach these people that run countries or entertainers or athletes? I'm blessed to coach some of the most successful people on the planet privately because here's the deal. Those boys aren't unique. Mm-hmm. Every human. Every human, the most successful person you can think of wants someone to truly love them, care about them, believe in them, and just show them how to do something better. And if you can get intentional about believing that and serving people that way, you'll be better at a parent. You'll be a better friend. You'll be a better business person. You'll be a better human. And that's why I love doing my show. We're both talking about we both love doing our shows. I love people. You put me in an Uber. I can tell you right now, here's the first thing I say, tell me your story. I want to hear their story. And by the time I get out of that car, if it's 10 minutes or 50 minutes, they're going to go, this guy loves me, man. He cares about me. He believes me. Yesterday, I get into an Uber. I got to tell you this. Because humans are the gift. You have to open them. Mm -hmm. Humans are a gift. Open them. I get in this Uber yesterday like I always do. My wife always laughs. Here we go. And I said, (laughs) hey, tell me your story. This man was from Lebanon. He's driving an Uber. You would easily judge him. His car was not nice. It was a little bit dirty in the back. He wasn't dressed meticulously. And he starts to talk to me about his journey to this country. Turns out, fast forward, this man has a daughter at Harvard a son at Yale, and another son at Stanford. And he drives an Uber to help supplement for their tuition in addition to their college loans. And I thought, what a magnificent man. This is a great man to have raised. I said, tell me about your wife. You must have a remarkable wife for the two of you to. And he tells me he's so proud of his wife and loves his wife so much. And I learned a lot about Lebanon and whatnot. And you know what? It was just a little dose for 20 minutes of, hey, man, I love you. I care about you. I really do. Man, do I believe in you? I want to know the magic sauce of raising kids that go to those kind of schools, man. That's impressive. And you know what? Let me give you something. Here's my podcast. It might help you live a little bit better. And I gave him my podcast. So that's how I try to live my life. Where did you learn
0: that? I mean, I feel like I've been that way as well. And then when I read How to Win Friends and Influence People, then I had language around it and I could yeah. be much more intentional about it. Did you have a mentor or some book that you came across that gave you the
1: keys to that? Well, I learned it at McKinley. I felt it when I was at McKinley when I was with my boys. And then Mm. the first time one of my salespeople in business got up and talked, and he has since passed away, but he was much older than me. I was like 25 and he was like 65.
0: Mm.
1: And he got up and he won this award. And he said, I just want to thank my mentor, 65 year old man with a 25 year old mentor. And he goes, You might think, what does a 25 year old man have to give me? Because this is what we all think. What do I have to give? what do Mm -hmm. I have? And he said to me, got very emotional. And he goes, that young man over there is the first man in my life to really believe in me. Mm -hmm. He really believes in me. And he was a religious person. And he said, he sees Jesus in me. He sees my gifts. He sees what I'm great at. He loves me. And you know what? I've learned a lot about him, how to do this business better. And I went, wait a minute. That's what I was doing with Raul at McKinley. It's the same thing." This works with every human being in the world. And I sort of became my own vernacular and my own language. Now I've read a bunch of books that talk about be present with people and love people and all that other stuff. But really, I learned it in those moments when I started at McKinley and I learned it in business. And I have found in my life that the way that people know that you care about them, how do I get people to find their giftedness? Every single human's walking around with two or three beautiful gifts that are just special to them. It could be their beauty, their intellect, their humor, their problem solving, their kindness, their patience right? Their resiliency, their intellect, whatever it might be. And if you tell somebody, hey, you know I love you so much? You know why I believe in you so much? This, this, and this. And it's something they already know to be true about themselves. And then you link it to them doing something great. You're going to be on a list of less than one to three people in their entire life who have ever touched them like that. And so for me, what I love when I meet, what I wasn't doing with the Uber guy was listening for the story, although I was, I was listening for his gifts. Mm. And then to be able to say, I know why your children are so successful." because you love them so deeply and you're such a kind man and you're willing to do anything for your family anything even drive an uber after you work a full day and he just lit up and he went i do love my family very emotional i would do anything for my children and i said i think your wife would too and he goes oh even more than me i think today he's remembering that conversation because it was real and it's really true and i started to think Am I that kind of father? Would I do what he's willing to do? Would I have overcome what he's willing to overcome? Man. So I just think, when you have a real love for people and you go, I want to open this gift up. And when I open the gift, I'm going to try to uncover what their gifts are. And then just tell them, just tell them you will see humans light up and all the noise of the world, all the stress, all the conflict, all the this, that, left, right, south, north, you know, all for you to have those kind of exchanges with human beings is the most beautiful thing you could possibly do. And yeah, you know what? by the way, if you're in business, you could probably make a fortune doing it, but that ought to not be your reason for doing it. It ought to not be your intention. Your intention ought to be to just make a difference in someone else's life. And man, will you begin to light up? You want to have your confidence go through the roof? Walk around life like that? Link your confidence you know I say this in the book, to your intentions. People keep linking their confidence to their abilities or their achievements. Well, you're going to chase that forever. What if your confidence came from? I'm a good man. I'm a good woman. My intent is to do good. My intent is to serve. My intent is to contribute. Man, will you light up with confidence when you know to say something true about yourself like that.
0: Yeah, it sounds like you got a lot of that from your dad, too, because he didn't really care a lot about your material success. He would would reemphasize that it's so important for you to be a good man and be there for other people and help people feel seen and heard.
1: And I I feel like he's one of your guardian angels, man. Yeah, I can honestly tell you that in my dad's case, like I think you know this, but I would my dad and I golfed. We're both crappy golfers, but we love to golf. And I would say, hey, dad, let's jump on the jet. Let's fly to Maui and play some golf. I got a business meeting over there. My dad never went on my airplane. My plane was parked. My dad could walk from my dad's house. Well, it would be a long walk, but he could get to, the, he could get to my plane in three minutes in a car. My father never went on my private jet. I've had five of them. I don't say that to brag. I say that to you that he had five opportunities, never went on it. I'm going to say, dad, let's go to Maui and play this great golf course on the ocean. This is how beautiful and simple my family is. My dad would go, well, why, why would we do that? We could just, play, we could just go play El Prado and Chino, the Muni. I said, but dad, it's crap. He goes, I don't care about the golf course. I get five hours with my son. Mm. I don't care about the golf. And this is a lesson. You want to know the power of one more? I take it from you. Then you understand how beautiful having one more chance is, one more decision. My dad died last year. I told you my favorite things to golf. What do you think I would do right now? What I would give for one more round of golf with my dad? I can't even say it. You what had me give... crying in your book reading that part. I was like choking up. Yeah, I haven't, <laughs> I, haven't, I haven't not said that out loud since I wrote it. This is the first show I've said that on.
0: And he died in October 2020. So I'm not even sure if you could even be in the room when all of that
1: was happening. Yeah, I was with him when it happened. But do you know what I would give for one more round of golf with my dad? Just to see him. Hey, dad, good putt. Yeah, I was pretty good, wasn't it, Eddie? What would you give if you've lost somebody for one more conversation? If anything. Right. How precious are people once you start understanding when I take the one more from you? And if you have people here that you still love, what if you started to approach that time when you walk in the room? What if this was the last one? What if I only had one more conversation, one more dinner, one more whatever it is with them? If they have passed away like my dad has, honor them with who you become with the one mores in your life. But I can tell you when you shrink it down, by the way, you're going to have one more day someday too. You're going to be my dad someday where you have one more day, one more hour, one more breath. And so
0: the question Talk about what you witnessed your dad doing as a sponsor, as an AA sponsor all the way up until the end.
1: Yeah, I didn't know this because my dad was in a, you know, an anonymous program. But when he died, I found all these index cards with all these initials on it up in his bureau. And what they were, were the, there's hundreds of them. There were the, the at sobriety one day anniversary dates of their sobriety. My dad would call all these people, hundreds of them and say, Hey, stay sober one more day. Happy birthday. And these were all people that my dad would help get sober. My dad would go to bars and pull people out of them. He would text message, he'd have early breakfast, late night conversations and as he was passing away, his phone kept ringing. And my dad had lung issues and he would breathe <sighs> he
0: would
1: breathe like that. And some breaths were three breaths a minute, some were 30. His phone kept ringing. And he says, "My mom's name is Debbie. And my dad's going to pass away within the hour." Mm-hmm. Within a few hours. Debbie? Who's gone? And he's on morphine, and my mom goes, "Ed, it doesn't matter who's calling. You're not taking the call. I, there's no Instagram going to be on this. There's no nothing." And my dad, says, "Who is it?" And my mom says, "It's someone named Raul."
0: And my dad's "Give me the phone."
1: My dad knew that Raul was probably about to go drink again, mm. and he took the call. And mm-hmm. my mom held the phone up to my dad's ear as my dad was passing. And my dad talked to Raul for almost 20 minutes and said to him, said, Raul, just don't drink for one more day. Mm.
0: One more day.
1: And Raul spoke at my dad's funeral. And it was a guy who was incarcerated for 20 years. He was incarcerated for manslaughter. My dad helped all kinds of different people. And Raul said the words that I've heard many times myself, because my dad had the same name as me, he said, Ed Milet changed my life, except it wasn't me, it was my dad. Because in <laughs> life, we don't get anything except who we are. We don't even always get our goals. You know, I say this in the book, we all get our standards. And my dad's standard was to always help one more person. And so he did it to his last hours of his life.
0: Yeah. I mean, I love the way the book is laid out. One more emotion, one more, pretty much everything under the sun and one more. And then It's a kitchen sink book. It it ends with that story. But also you, you reserve your faith, the part about faith until the end. Was that intentional? What was the thinking behind that?
1: Hardest chapter for me to write was faith. In fact, it probably took me longer to write that chapter than all of the other ones collectively. I think I say that in the book. And the reason was, is that it's an interesting topic because you don't want to be offensive with people or come across as judgmental. And I also have this thing with religion. And I don't mean this in a negative thing. I think religion is wonderful, but I also think sometimes religion can be the thing that gets in the way of you and God. Oftentimes organized religion. And I do go to a church and I am a Christian, but oftentimes right when you say that, you alienate anybody who's not. So I wanted to say it in the fact that I respect people of all faiths. And even if you don't have any, I'm also very scientifically based. I believe in the quantum field. I believe in energy. I believe in vibration. I believe in frequency. And so I think sometimes people think, well, if you believe in this deity or God, you must be a dummy and not know about the quantum field or energy. And then all these people that believe in the quantum field think the reverse. And that's not true at all. At least in my case, I know energy exists. I know the quantum field exists because I tap into it all the time. I'm huge on vibration. You can feel my energy when I speak to you. We're always making people feel something. We just need to take control of what it is that they're feeling. But for me, I wanted to write about my faith because it wouldn't be true to me if I wrote a book that said, here's how to be more happy and successful, and I leave out the center part of my own life, which is my faith. And so I am unique in the sense that I truly do respect people of every single faith. I truly do. And I admire people of faith. I admire people who are agnostic and are wrestling with the idea of faith or not. I admire anybody who's in the contemplation of their existence. And I just think our existences are beautiful. My journey is not your journey, but for me to write a book about my life and my experience and then not share my faith. Well, that wouldn't be true to me. And so I tried to do it in the most respectful, tactful way I could, yet still express what I believe for me for me and not to press upon that to anybody, but wouldn't it be ridiculous for me not to express how I feel the most important part of my life. And so I do write about it. I hope I did it in a respectful way and that people understand the intent behind it.
0: Yeah. I listened to one of your podcasts with, Dabo Sweeney. I have no idea how you got Dabo Sweeney on a podcast because that was awesome, man. I'm I'm a huge college football fan. And you you guys talked about faith and he kind of had the same sentiment. He said, look, if you're going to hire Dabo Sweeney as your coach, then you're going to take all of it. You can't just take the X's and O's. You have to take the belief and the foundation behind it. And you said something that really resonated. You said, look, I don't have to be right in this. It just, as long as it serves me, and it allows me to show up in the way that I show up. And he agreed with that as well. well
1: for I thought me, that was very powerful. Well, that was a great interview, by the way. One of those easy interviews. I asked two questions and then we were done in an hour because he can really talk. Fantastic. He can really talk. He's incredible. Yeah, I feel like this, like it serves me. My belief systems serve me. And by the way, I will share with you that my dad's faith was different than mine. Hmm. And we had wonderful conversations and debates about it. He was a little bit more what I would call uh, spiritual, more new age a little bit. And I have elements of that as well. but. My dad and I would have these debates and discussions and share ideas. And it was wonderful. I just love the discussion of faith. I'd ask my dad because my dad was sick for eight years. He had cancer for eight years. Dad, what do you think happens when you pass? Where do you think you go? What do you think it's like? And his discussions over time. And then he'd ask me, what do you think? And I said, well, this is my view and how I feel about it and what I want. Oh, wow, that's beautiful. You know, I'll think about that. I'll pray about it. You know, And I just love respectful, beautiful conversations amongst human beings and it is a hard conversation because it's such a touchy thing for people but it's such a beautiful thing because there's the truth all of us have an ongoing question in our minds of why am i here who am i what's this all about what's it mean and i think it's healthy for different people to share their perspectives on it and also to say i question my own i have a relationship with god and what that means for me is that i always be i know everything you're wrong i'm right that's the part that puts me off for me is I have a relationship with God. Sometimes it's better than others. I actually think questioning one's faith and contemplating it, even having doubts from time to time is healthy because it causes you to ask better questions. It causes you to dig deeper. It causes you to pray more, it causes you to reflect more. So I'm open in saying that I'm in a constant ever growing relationship with God that I want to understand more of. I'm a Christian, yet I meditate every single morning. I empty my mind. I want to tap into the best frequency that I possibly can. These are not exclusive ideas to one another. They can both exist. You can believe it. In my case, that God created a beautiful quantum energy field that I have access to. And so maybe I'm a crazy person, but that's what I believe. So there are so many
0: people in the world, especially young men who have this idea that as soon as they achieve the level, even a hundredth of the level of success that you have, that there's somehow going to be happy. Now we have someone on the podcast, five private planes, you know, God knows how many millions of dollars. Take us behind the veil. What happens in terms of happiness? How does happiness actually happen?
1: Well, happiness is different than fulfillment to me. So I'd be lying. Look, all of you bought a new pair of shoes or a new outfit and made you happy. Mm -hmm. Right. The question is, how long does that last? Mm -hmm. Happiness is fleeting. Sometimes fulfillment is permanent. And so I'm not going to tell you that buying a private plane didn't make me happy for a while. It did. It was. It's, look, it's better than flying coach. I'm going to tell you straight up. <laughs> I'm going to tell you straight up. Okay? But, but he, I've been happy rich and I've been happy poor. I'll take happy rich. Having said that, it doesn't last. Mm-hmm. And this notion that you're going to delay giving yourself the gift of bliss until a particular destination. People conflate something. They conflate happiness and satisfaction. So a lot of people think, okay, I'll be happy when? when I get there, when I get the relationship, when I get the body, when I get the jet, when I get the amount of money, they'll delay it. The problem is when you get there, you take you with you. The Mm -hmm. same emotional home. That's why I have one more emotion in the book. You take you there. I'm going to tell you straight up. You will get to that mansion and you're living there with you. My dad used to Mm -hmm. tell me that He goes, don't forget this, man. You get to that big house. You got to live with the dude when you get there. You. So if you could start to love you and like you now, you'll be a lot better. Go get the mansion. I just go get the mansion. My dad didn't want a man. You could give my dad a mansion. He wouldn't take it. But my dad would say, when you get there, man, you're going to bring you with you. So I always knew that. The other thing is, then the achievers have this other mindset. They go, well, if I enjoy this right now, if I have fun, if I allow myself to be happy, I'm going to lose all my drive. I'm going to lose my drive and ambition. You're not getting it. You can be blissfully dissatisfied, meaning you can live in bliss and still have dissatisfaction and want to achieve more. They're not the same thing. So I've always, I think for the most part, been a very blissful, happy person who still lives with some dissatisfaction about what I could give, what I could contribute, what I could do. That dissatisfaction is healthy. That dissatisfaction says I'm capable of more. It's pulling me in a better direction, but I'm not going to wait till I get there to have bliss. I'm giving myself bliss now. You don't lose your drive. I like to eat great food, right? Trust me. And so i you going to do a great steak, the minute you bite into that steak, you don't lose your desire to have another bite. If you're vegan, you bite into the best ever salad you've ever had in your life. You don't go, ah, great bite. I don't want any more. Actually, the enjoyment of it makes you want more of it. So mm-hmm. to the extent that you can enjoy yourself and give yourself bliss now, that dopamine hits telling your brain, let's do this again. Let's have some more. So happiness is required for the actual things you think you want to get. And so that's why it's so important in the book that I have the one more emotion chapter because I want you to take an inventory of the emotions you want. It's not the jet you want. It's how you think it'll make you feel. It's not the relationship you want. It's how you think it'll make you feel. So what if you could learn to have those feelings and emotions now and not make it conditional on stuff? And here's what you're going to find. Ironically, if you can get to the place that I teach in the book where you experience those emotions, now you are far more likely to actually get the stuff. You'll actually get more stuff if you can give yourself the bliss and the peace and the clarity of a chapter, as you know, called equanimity, having equanimity with a calmness under duress, you can experience those things. Now, the achievement part becomes almost secondary and easy to do. It's when you live in conflict and stress and anxiety and frustration and fear and depression and, and lack that it makes getting the stuff so much harder to get. That's the irony.
0: How does one develop this self-awareness? of that relationship
1: between how they feel and fulfillment itself? I would take an inventory. I would ask you, I'd ask you right now, the last week or so, isn't it kind of like the previous week for the most part, emotionally, regardless of the conditions? Like, what do you experience mainly in your life? Do you experience Mm -hmm. bliss, ecstasy, peace on a regular basis? Or do you experience frustration, fear, angst, worry, down, you know, for me, I'll share something pretty transparent, and I said this a little bit earlier, but I'll elaborate. I love chaos, and I love it because I grew up in it, and so my emotional home is chaos. And I said this earlier, but I got to be clear with you. I mean, I, I really developed chaos in my life. No matter how successful I became financially, I'm like, I got to mess it up again so we can do more. I want chaos. I knew it didn't serve me, but it was familiar. Our mind always moves towards what it's most familiar with. Familiarity is everything in life. And most of these emotions you have were installed in you when you were defenseless as a child. Your emotional home you learned from your parents who raised you or what they said to you when you were defenseless. And so be a good boy. Be quiet. Settle down. Behave yourself. Whatever it might be. And these are emotions that we experience. I want to make. I need approval. I need them to agree with me. I don't want to misstep and life all of a sudden we're an adult and our experience begins to confirm this belief we have, and then it's who we are. Joe Dispenza says that this personality we've developed alters our personal reality. And so if we can change those two things, all of a sudden our personality changes, our personal reality changes. And so it's taking an inventory of what do I really want to feel? And what do I feel? And for me, then when I'm doing it, I'm aware. And I go, oh, I'm doing the chaos thing again. Ah, I'm doing that worry thing again. And when you have an awareness over an emotion or a thought, for the most part, it loses its power over you. Awareness makes something lose its power. So it's just being aware of self, aware of who you are. Emotions aren't good or bad necessarily. They just are like fear. That's a terrible emotion. Really? A little bit of fear is probably good, right? Because it helps us focus. We were given fear in the caveman days to stay alive. So we didn't get eaten by T-Rex. Right. So these emotions in some doses are all fine. It's a matter of how much of it and how often do we want to have it. For me, I'm very clear. I want more peace. And that peace already exists within me. I don't have to go get it somewhere else. Happiness exists in me. Bliss exists in me. I don't need to look outside of me to get it. I need to give myself the gift of experiencing what I already have. I already have it. I learned chaos. I learned fear. I learned insecurity. I was born with peace and bliss. And so were all of you. You had it as a child. You had it because you were closer to God. You were there more recently. And you had it because you hadn't learned the other emotions until people installed that software in you. Yeah. And I think it also ties
0: beautifully to this concept that you mentioned earlier of adjusting your thermostat, which is a kind of another way of saying identity. Correct. And you talked about the importance of surrounding yourself with the kinds of people who, because if you're afraid of taking a leap of faith, but you're hanging out with five people who all have taken multiple leaps of faith. Mm -hmm. That's going to rub off on you.
1: Big time. Here's the deal proximity is power. I have a trilogy in the book of how to change your identity. I won't go into the first two because I've covered them. Whatever your faith is, your intentions, which we've covered, and then association. If I'm a 75 degree of my life in bliss, right? Happiness, but I start hanging around people who live in a bliss state of 150 degrees and I intentionally surround myself in their proximity through proximity, they will heat me up somewhere closer to their temperature setting. It's kind of like fitness. If you're not in great shape and all three people you hang around are fitness professionals, which is an exaggerated example, you're going to eat with them. You're going to the gym with them. You're thinking with them. You're reading with, you can't help but change. So in fact, this is really, really true. You've already experienced it in your life. If you look at the people you're around right now, to some extent, emotionally, financially, whatever it is, you're within 20% of them, aren't you? And so if you can begin to alter those associations, your life changes. It's just, it's hard for people because they go, yeah, but I love these people. You don't have to drop everyone, but maybe you need to add some people, intentionally add them. I don't drop that many people. I only drop people that I think are antagonistic towards me. like They really don't want the best for me. Now, I may reduce proximity and frequency to some people in my life, but I'd much rather just add better ones than drop human beings. And for me, as I've added better ones, I found I start heating up the ones that I think live at a lower level than me and level meaning just temperature setting. Humans aren't one better than the other because I have friends that I'm around them simply because of their happiness level, but they're not wealthy. Mm -hmm. I have other ones that are my financial friends, right? I'm around them because they think at a wealth level that I want to think like and vibrate like and decide like and embody. And so there's different, I almost, I call them like your board of directors almost in your life. And it's the most important thing you can do is take an inventory. I know you all hear this, but most people never change it. They're around the same people they were five years ago. I want to just highlight an excuse that I think some people may use who are listening to this, Mm -hmm. because it's
0: a kind of a two-way street, right? Like Mm -hmm. if I'm in shape and someone who's not in shape wants to spend more time with me so that they can increase their temperature, their thermostat, how could that person who's not in shape? bring value to that dynamic so that it makes the people who are in shape want to spend quality, meaningful
1: time around this person? Reciprocity. Why do I have people around me, right? Reciprocity, meaning there's something else you bring to the table other than that, that they want. So I'm thinking of a pretty good example. I'll give you a good example. I am in pretty good shape, right? And one of my really, really good friends, who's a well-known person actually, is not, but he's an incredible man of faith. And so, what I bring him in the association is, hey, man, this is what we're going to eat for dinner tonight. He always teases me. I drink, but I don't drink a lot. And he's always, he's heavy. He's always telling me, he goes, I watch you, man. You never finish a drink. Mm. I go, I don't. I go, once in a while, I do. He goes, no, nah, man, you like sip that drink. I've had three. You've had like half a one. And then you order another one when the other one's still half full, just so everyone thinks you had another drink. I go, I didn't know I did that. He goes, yeah, I watch it. And all of a sudden, I've watched him over time, weird at an event last weekend. And I'm like, hey, you got two half drinks in front of you. And he goes, I do, don't I? So I'm changing him fitness wise. Why am I around him? This dude's a stud in his faith. This Mm. dude has been married for 40 years. Unbelievable in his faith. What he brings me is a love for God and a way of living life that's at a level higher than mine and little decisions he makes. Like when he's on the road, he gets room service. I said, why do you get room service? Jeff Foxworthy just said this to me on my show a few weeks ago. He goes, I know me, you know, I've never cheated on my wife, but I ain't put myself in any situations where I might. He goes, I could be in a bar with hot women. I'm not doing nothing. I have one drink. I'm fine. He goes, I have three drinks. I don't know. Goes, I ain't put myself in that situation. I go, that's a good move, man. And little stuff like that. So he's giving me that. I'm giving him the fitness thing. And sometimes it's nothing other than what I said earlier. This person loves me. They care about me. They believe in me. You'd be surprised how many people would like to be in your proximity if you just believed in them. Mm. just deeply believed in. I got a friend of mine, you know, Daryl Strawberry is right. Mm-hmm. His manager and mentor is one of my favorite dudes on the planet. He messages me almost every single day. They're the odd couple. Daryl is six, five, six, four African-American, just a stud. One of the greatest athletes of all time. And his manager is a little short guy from New York. I won't just, I love him, but I'll protect his identity. Not in the best shape in the world. And the most beautiful, kind God-fearing, brilliant man you will ever meet in your life. And you meet them, they're an odd couple, but they're not because they believe in each other. And one brings the other something completely different. And they are so close because there's a reciprocal relationship there that's just unsaid. But what's really underneath it all is they believe in each other very deeply. And that's what make that relationship work. And it makes any relationship work. So you work
0: with a lot of athletes still. You work with a lot of really high power people Talk about the difference, and you mentioned this in the book too, but talk about the difference in goals and standards when it comes yeah. to separating sort of the elite from the fray. What, what, what's different about goals and standards?
1: You don't always get your goals, do you? You don't ever always get your goals. You can write down 10 <laughs> goals. You might get three or four. You might get none. You might get seven. I know that's my experience. You will always get your standards. And so, mm. the people that perform at a high level consistently have higher standards. They set a standard that's much higher. You will always get your standards. Like, my goal of, I'm trying to get, I've weighed 225 pounds of or 221 a few months ago. I just set this goal up to go weigh 180. I wasn't in bad shape. I just want to transform my body because I think there's a correlation between if you can physically transform, you can transform anything in your life. And it's extreme transformation. I'm not even sure it's healthy, but I'm doing it. I'm down to like 190 right now. But the point that I'm making when I do it is that for me, that transformation, that outcome is a standard. In other words, I may not get to the goal of 180, but I have a standard of how I train, of how I eat, of who I am. And ultimately in life, you're always going to get your standard. You're not always going to get the goal. And so these people just set a different standard for themselves. They're a little bit more meticulous. Let's look at you. I mean, I think you're the perfect example of this. I have probably done 3000 interviews in my life. Okay. Why is your show so successful? And I mean this sincerely. It is very obvious. The first is your standard for preparation you just need to acknowledge and hear me on this. And I know, you know, this about you, your standard for preparation is ballistic. It is ballistic. (laughs) And so you might have a goal of having the number one podcast, but you have a standard that is so far beyond the preparation of other people that it's just a matter of time that that goal becomes true. The second thing is your ability to be present and listen. It's just incredible how you do it. It's a standard of yours. And so I think people who listen to your show every single week are seeing a standard that's absolutely incredible. You weren't the most well-known dude when you started this thing, right? You can't get the top person on the show, but all of a sudden the standard set. That standard spreads over time. And then the word spreads, and then you're like, even when I was going to be coming on your show, I got a billion requests, right? My team's like, this is a great show. This is a great show because of your standard. And so you're always going to get that. You're not always going to get your goals. And I tell you know, as you know, I go through details in the book of how to set standards. Thank you for that. I received that. And you're absolutely right. That was
0: a very intentional decision that I made. I'm going to be the most prepared interviewer
1: that anyone has ever spoken to. Yep. So it's uh, true. You are. <laughs> and I, admire and I, it I have a show and I try to do that as well. And right. I know what it's like when it's not there. And right. that standard is going to come home to roost. You know that eventually, eventually, look, you want to be successful at stuff, get great at it. And eventually greatness rises, period. Mm-hmm. Get great. No excuses. Get great. Eventually greatness goes where it's supposed to go.
0: And that's what Dabo was talking about in your interview with him. He's saying how you never know who's watching you. And if you're the person mm-hmm. who's delivering the coffee, you need to deliver the best coffee in the best way ever so that people feel can you, appreciated. Can I give you a real
1: example? I just want to continue to acknowledge you. I'm as you, we've been talking. I'm not exaggerating. You know, there's always the conversation you're having. You're present. Yeah. That's the other one that's always going on. Yeah. I'm thinking the whole time we're talking about who I want to refer to have on your show. Because <laughs> I, I know that. what it's like when you have a show. You want, you want that, right? Yeah, of and course. I'm sitting there going, man, I would refer anybody because they're going to have an interview experience. I'm not just saying this because it's, it's so different. I mean, this is my fourth interview of the day. I've had some really good interviews. Not even close to the level of preparation. (laughs) And then what's it do with me? Watch what happens. It makes me want to give you my A game. And so standards are infectious. They transcend organizations. Most Mm. things in life are not taught. They're caught. Mm. Caught as a parent, as a leader, as a friend, they're caught. It's not you to sit down and go, this is what you should do. People watch you and they catch it. I'd like to think most of the things my kids have gotten from me. I didn't sit down and go, let me tell you how to right? It's they caught it. They watched their dad do it consistently. It's a standard. Speaking of that, you
0: also talk about intentionally making your life inconvenient. What do you mean
1: by that? And how is that different from problems? Well, I think inconvenience drives innovation. I think that people avoid inconvenience, which is a really sad thing because I think you're just unbelievable how you research the book. But I think that I chase inconvenience. Most of the great things I want to do for myself and my life and for other people are inconvenient. And most people want to do the convenient thing. Listen, mental toughness is about doing difficult things, about doing hard things and getting good at doing hard things. And then over time, you begin to enjoy. Like, listen, working out every day is inconvenient. It hurts. It's painful. (laughs) I don't want to get up and do it. Most of you don't. And most of you do do it. So you have the ability to do inconvenient things when you believe it serves you. But what if I told you almost all inconvenient things serve you? And if you would begin to pursue the inconvenient, you'd be surprised at how your life would change. And so Mm -hmm. actually, oftentimes when I'm looking at doing something, I'm like, how convenient is this? And if it's a really, really convenient thing, it's probably not a high level thing for me to be doing. I love inconvenience. I don't mean inconvenience like I want to bother another person. I mean that I'm willing to inconvenience myself to produce a result for myself and other people that I believe is worthy of it. So that's why it's such a powerful thing. Don't avoid it. Pursue it. And again, case in point, I'm two weeks behind in
0: my book that was due on April the 1st. Mm -hmm. And so it would have been very easy to justify shortcutting my preparation for this interview. But I just, again, having been on so many interviews, so many podcasts, I know the value of having someone who is well-prepared asking you questions It just makes for such a better experience for everybody that I was willing to inconvenience myself and put in the time and put in the work and read the book and do all the things. And, and now you're talking about <laughs> referring me to, to everyone else. And that's, that's like a real interesting, real-time result of inconveniencing yourself in just real world ways that you're, everyone's doing right now. Whatever you're doing in your life right now, if you go the extra mile and you make that a habit, which is something you talk about, you make that not just an isolated act, but a lifestyle. This is what you do.
1: And then that becomes what you're known for. Perfect word is lifestyle. That's the perfect word for it. The book is called The Power of One More because mm-hmm. when you look at your day, there's typically one more thing you could do and it's the inconvenient thing. And if you start to build the habit of going, hmm, the convenient thing or the inconvenient thing? What a 99.9% of human beings do? They choose the convenient one. The path of least resistance. I'm saying choose the path of most resistance more often than not. And you will see that the resistance is much less than you think because what comes from it, the magnification, I call it the multiplier effect, is huge in your life for doing the inconvenient thing.
0: Yeah. My friend, Coot Blackson, I don't know if you know him. He's in the spiritual community, but he's a marathon runner. He he posted something years and years ago when he Mm -hmm. ran his first LA marathon. He said, I didn't run the marathon in 26 miles. I ran it in one mile. 26 times. Oh, I love that. Yeah. And every mile, just one more mile. One more, mile. just one
1: more mile. Oh, I love that. <laughs> that's so good. That's so good. I had this guy on my show, the Iron Cowboy. You should have him on. Yeah, did, yeah, of course. He did 100 ultra marathons in 100 days. 100 right? days. Yeah. And then I interviewed him and I said, What were you listening to when you were doing your 100 days? He goes, Oh, I listened to your podcast. I couldn't believe because mm, that's why. Wow. But here's what's great. I said, What did you do the day after the 100? He goes, I did one more. I said, wait a minute, say that again, because I actually did one more marathon the next day. He did one more after doing 100. Is that not crazy? I love that. Crazy. So how are you
0: thinking about success these days in contrast to how you were thinking about it in your younger days?
1: Success mm-hmm. is your terms. It's your terms. I have a sister who's an immensely successful woman, and you'll never hear of her unless I talk about her. My sister is a, a middle school teacher at a Christian school. And my sister's blind. She was born with diabetes and lost her vision later in life. She can see some a little bit, but she's legally blind. She can't drive. She needs help grading papers. But every single day, that little precious sister, Andrea of mine, gets up early before the sun's up and she gets dressed and goes down and serves children. And she's been doing Mm -hmm. it for decades. She's right where she's supposed to be. You want to know why? Go back to earlier conversation. She's using her gifts in the service of other people. She's a nurturer. She's a teacher. She's patient. She's kind. She's also really short. She's like 4'10. So she's the same height as all the kids. So she can connect with them. Like God made her to be a school teacher. And so people are like, who's more successful, Ed Milet, the rich guy, or Andrea? She was Milet. She's now Ward. We're both successful because we're using our gifts in the service of other people. I can honestly tell you, she's better at what she does than I am at what I do, but she's Mm -hmm. successful. So success to me is that. Here's what it is. The results of your life equal your blueprint for it. You have a blueprint and a vision for your life. You operate out of your imagination and your vision, and the life you produce reflects it. Lack of success is you have a vision and a dream for your life, and the blueprint that you end up creating isn't reality. My sister had a blueprint. She wanted to be a school teacher. She wanted to serve children. She wanted to make a difference. She's living that vision. That's success. So whatever your vision is, if you end up living it, you're successful. In fact, I think if you're pursuing it, you're successful. The journey towards it, it's getting clear and having the courage and the vision to take the steps towards it. I believe you're successful.
0: Yeah, you gave this wonderful example. I think it was in a podcast interview where you talked about being in the gym one day and you saw this woman in a wheelchair Mm. and you went up to her. And what did
1: you say? Well, my recollection is because this has happened more than once, but I recollection that I told her how much that she inspired me and how beautiful she was. And it was really important. I did. I don't think I said this part of it on the podcast, but she was thinking of leaving. Mm. I watched this woman. She's in a wheelchair and she's working out and she really was working out. I watched her try to climb out of her chair on her and I just had to walk over. I just said, I just want you to know I've been coming to the gym for so many years. I don't think anyone's ever inspired me more than you. You're beautiful. You're absolutely incredible. She got all filled up in the eyes and told me that I needed to hear that. I sometimes don't want to come in here because I'm embarrassed and I don't look like everybody else and I'm in people's way. And it's amazing to me how few people are seen and are acknowledged and just letting someone know, hey, I see you. You know, I love you. I care about you. I believe in you. I think you're awesome. I actually did this with her too. I said, I showed her, I said, let me, can I show you the one thing on your bicep? She goes, yeah. I go, make sure you tuck your elbow in because if you let your <laughs> elbow flare out, you'll end up hurting your elbow. You know how I know I did it. And then finally someone told me, so I wanted her to make her, and she's like, oh, thank you. And like a week later, I could see her at the gym and she's, she's pointing at her elbow. She's doing these little five pound dumbbells in her wheelchair and she's showing me and she just felt good, you know? And so that's what I think the whole experience of being a human is about you know, and it's so counterculture right now. If I worry about something, it's the way that we treat one another. And it's why shows like yours are so important because it's this hour or hour and 20 minutes of something different than what you'll get everywhere else in the world. I'd like to think my shows that way too. You know, my book is like, wow, this is different than what I keep seeing on TV or what my social media is feeding me every day. This is beautiful and we need more of it. That's why you're so important. So, Were you able to get Max, your son, out on the golf course with you and your dad
0: to kind of pass the baton, that dynamic, that relationship?
1: We did play. Thank God. Yeah. We got the chance to play several times together. And my son actually is a good golfer. As you know, he plays college golf. He's the one who ended up being a good player. But I did. And some of my favorite memories were being out there with my dad and my son. And for all of you that have or don't have children that will have children someday, if I could go back again, I would have spent more time being present with my family you know, what do you know about success? And there's lessons I also learned about what not to do. And I was younger. I was not present enough where I was, you know what I'm saying? Like I, you know, if I was in a business meeting, I was thinking about work. If I was at work, I was thinking about the gym. And if I was at the gym, I was worried I should have been with my family. And when I was with my family, I was focused on a meeting I should have done. So I regret that. And as I got older, I finally became present and presence is where all the beauty is. So, yeah, we played golf and I was present for those rounds. I remember them very vividly. When my kids were young, my wife will often say, do you remember when Bella? Do you remember when Max? And I don't remember. Mm. I don't remember because I wasn't really there, even though I was there. And for any of you that have young children or are going to have children, take my Mm -hmm. advice on what not to do for me. Just be where your feet are. Wherever your feet are, be present in those moments.
0: You started putting your phone down when your wife wants to talk to you now. So that's an improvement. (laughs) I put my phone down when I come
1: home. So I'm so tempted by my phone. When I get into the garage, I leave my phone in the car the first 30 minutes. Usually it's an hour now so that I can't even look at it when I come home. Daddy is fully present when he gets home and my wife drives her nuts. She'll be talking. Are you hearing me? You know, and I finally said, you know what? I'm not. I'm going to put this phone down. So I leave it in the car. Hmm. And you don't look at it for 30 minutes after you wake up. I do not. Hardest thing in life for me was Hmm. that, that when I wake up, and I roll over and grab that phone full of problems and texts Hmm. and emails. And so the first 30 minutes when I wake up, I do not touch that phone, no matter how tempting it is. I do not do it. I go meditate, I stretch, I do what I need to do, I hydrate, I go through my visualizations, and then I'll get to that thing. Because I'm gonna, I'm not gonna react through my entire day. I'm gonna dictate the terms. I'm not gonna respond and react. And if you start by responding and reacting, that sets the context for your whole day.
0: So obviously, if you want people to pick up a copy of the book or two or five or 10, uh, yeah, the power, of one more. If they read the book and they they're enrolled in the Ed Milet. Mm -hmm. philosophy and universe, where should they go
1: next? Thank you for asking. I would go to, I probably social media, Instagram, Ed Mm -hmm. Mylett, E-D-M-Y-L-E-T-T. Also, my podcast does very well. I have every week it's either me or top performer on some topic. And so I I noticed
0: you started it in 2016, but you didn't get consistent until January of 2018. Was there something that happened there that made you say, I'm just going to do this every week? Or
1: did you get a team in place? I got a team in place. Yeah, I got okay. a team in place. I finally made it a priority. It was I made it a priority because I took an inventory before that year. and said, "What do I enjoy doing the most of all my businesses? Of all, well, I enjoy doing the podcast the most. Well, why don't I do it regularly? Because I don't have a team, and so mm-hmm. I got a team. My team was me and my son. My son was the editor, my sixteen-year-old <laughs> son. And so then I got a team in place, and now I have a deal with SiriusXM and Stitcher. They've done a deal with me, and so." I love doing it. And by the way, even if I didn't love doing it, I have that deal, so I have to do it. But I can't wait to do my show every single week. I'm sometimes thinking I go to two shows a week. I don't know. But right now I do one a week and they're pretty special when they come out. Beautiful. Well, thank you, man. Thank you so much
0: for making the time. My honor. I really appreciate it. Having the honor of exploring and researching your backstory and getting all inspired. And literally, I was crying when I was reading your book, the end of the book. it 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 really touched me. And honestly, to be completely transparent, it made me want to invest more into my relationship with my father because I haven't been doing so and and I still am blessed enough to have him on the planet. And so when you said I would give anything for one more round of golf, I was like, I gotta,
1: I gotta start doing better. So thank you for that. I can see that on your face. And I am honored to have been with you. It was an honor when we started, but now I'm super impressed and I got some people for you. Trust me, my team's gonna be reaching out to you. Thanks, man. I really, really appreciate it. And uh, wishing you. you all the best, looking forward to crossing paths at some point very soon. My honor. Thank you.
0: Thank you again for tuning into my conversation with Ed Milet. You can get his new book, which is The Power of One More, everywhere books are sold. You can also follow Ed on social media at Ed Milet. That's E-D-M-Y-L-E-T-T. And of course, we'll put links to everything in the show notes, which you can find at lightwatkins.com show. And if this is your first time listening to The Light Show, we've got an incredible archives of other interviews with luminaries, such as director Ava DuVernay, Yoga with Adrian founder Adrian Mischler, Slam poet and actor and musician Saul Williams, The War of Art author Stephen Pressfield, internet poet Young Pueblo, and many others who share how they found their path and their purpose. You can also search interviews by subject matter. You'll see at the top of that page, lightwatkins.com slash show, there's a drop-down menu where you can search past episodes by specific subjects. So if you want to hear more episodes about people who've taken leaps of faith, people who've overcome financial struggles, health challenges, you name it, you can get a list of all of those episodes on that page. Also, you can now watch these podcast interviews on my YouTube channel, which is just at Light Watkins, and I post the raw, unedited version of of each conversation in my Happiness Insiders community, which you can find at thehappinessinsiders.com. If you join that community, you will also have access to my seven-day meditation kickstart and my 108-day meditation challenge. One way to support this show is to leave a rating or a review for the podcast, which you can do quickly by glancing down at your phone and on the Apple Podcast app screen, just go to the name of the podcast, click on that, Scroll down past the previous episodes and you'll see five blank stars. Click the star all the way on the right and you have left a rating. So thank you very much in advance for that. And I look forward to hopefully seeing you back here next week with another story about someone just like me and you who took a leap of faith in the direction of their purpose. And until then, keep trusting your intuition, keep following your heart and keep taking those leaps of faith. And if no one's told you recently that they believe in you, I believe in you. Thank you and have a great day. If you want to get a little extra nudge when it comes to following your heart and taking leaps of faith and believing in yourself each day, then you want to sign up for my free daily dose of inspiration email. You'll join 30,000 other subscribers who receive a short inspirational story or anecdote that's meant to inspire you to become the best version of yourself each day. You can sign up at lightwatkins.com and you'll get your first inspirational message as early as tomorrow. Again, just go to lightwatkins.com. You can sign up for free, and you'll wake up each morning inspired to be the best version of yourself.